You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our passage today is John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, hello, everybody. Good morning. So Thanksgiving, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. But now Thanksgiving's over. You know what that means? It's Christmas sermon time. It's time to start preaching some Christmas sermons. So Christmas is the celebration of Jesus' arrival. And so John's gospel, as we are studying it, you know, one of the reasons I chose this is because it lines up really well with the Christmas season. But John, in his gospel, unlike the other gospels, he doesn't write a narrative account of Jesus' birth. Instead, what John does is he... he uh, aims, he pursues uh, 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 teaching us about Jesus' arrival, his breaking into our time and space from a theological perspective. And what's called by theologians is the incarnation. So John is writing and teaching us today about the incarnation. And here's my points as we go through these four verses today. We celebrate the incarnation. We love the incarnation because it is the ultimate revelation of God. And if it is the ultimate revelation of God, if that is true, it's going to show us two things about God, at least today. It shows us the wise justice of God and the incredible love of God. So we we celebrate the incarnation. Why? It's the ultimate revelation of who God is, of himself. It reveals his wise justice and reveals his incredible love for us. So that's what we have for us today. Let's go ahead and bow our heads, pray, and ask God to teach us and help us. God. We come before you today knowing that you're merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You are um, kind <laughs> and you are uh, infinitely good. You are um, better than we could ever ask or imagine. And so, Father, we come before you today knowing that your heart for us is that we uh, have joy in you, that we grow, that we become more like your son. So, Lord, would you teach us from this passage today. Teach us from the incarnation uh, about who you are and why we should follow you and how it changes our life. Uh, Help us, Lord, to understand this and help me teach this. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we celebrate the incarnation. Why? Because number one, it's the ultimate revelation of God. So go with me to verse 14. It says, and the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. So that means Jesus is born, he resides among us, he has entered into the world. And John uses the word dwelt here. And in the Greek, it's the word skeno. And that's not important other, other than uh, for the Greek readers who are reading John's gospel, uh, skeno in their Greek Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew originally, then, then translates into Greek, into Greek, and that's what most of the New Testament writers are using. In the Old Testament, whenever uh, God meets in the tent of meetings with Moses, or in the tabernacle, 
The word skeno is used in those instances. So for the Greek readers, what they think of when they see that word dwelt is God meeting with man. And for the Hebrew readers in the original language, their word that, that's used for God's radiance and glory that appears, that manifests when he meets with people, that word in Hebrew sounds almost, similar, almost exactly the same as the word skeno. So John is writing this in such a way to engage both the Greek and the Jew, and he's showing all his readers there for what? That Jesus who's entering into the world, his arrival is the culmination of all previous meetings with God. All previous meetings of of man and God, Jesus is the pinnacle. Jesus is is the climax, the clearest, the fulfillment of them all. And then it leads him to write this in verse 14. We have seen his glory. And so what do we think of, all right, with our Old Testament minds on, of course, his readers know the Old Testament. What do they think of when they see that, that phrase, we have seen his glory? They think of Mount Sinai. They think of the Holy of Holies. They think, though, of those instances, what, of course, is happening is that God is shrouded in a cloud of smoke. No one in the Old Testament ever actually saw God because his glory was hidden. His glory was uh, not clearly perceived. But John is saying, we have actually seen that glory, that glory that was always hidden, that was always a mystery. We have laid eyes on it. And then he clarifies it a little bit more in the next line and says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, meaning we have laid our eyes on the very glory of God who is who? The Son, Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God that was always hidden before. And so, in short, what's John so far teaching us just in these few phrases that Jesus is God? And that's really, really significant. If you've grown up in church, of course, you've heard that all of your life, but don't just breeze over that thought. Don't just glance over that thought because it means this. If you want to know who God really is, <laughs> you know, who does God favor? Uh, what is God passionate about? What is God like? What's his personality? What's his mind like? You know, what's his heart? If you want to know who God is, because Jesus is God, the revelation of who God is, that means you look no further than Jesus to know who God is. You look no further than Jesus to know who God is. So he says this in 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made known who God really is. A good cross-reference for this I want to bring up now is in Hebrews chapter 1. It says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, how long ago? To our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is, who is the son? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So across the whole New Testament, it's very, very clear. You look no further than Jesus to know exactly who God is, the unseen God, the invisible God, the transcendent God who is not able to be accessed by us. He has made himself known. Jesus is God. Okay, very important, meaning he's the ultimate revelation of who God is. Now, there's probably no more uh, contested and controversial statement than that right there, that Jesus is God. See, many people, many of you here, I don't know who's here today, but maybe some of you think Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good moral teacher. He maybe even was a prophet. But to say he's divine, to say he is God, not true. But I can get behind him as a moral teacher. I can get behind him as a, 
a good leader, a good prophet, but I cannot get behind the, that claim that he is God. And the best um, argument against that comes from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And so if you're Christian, tuck this away in your back pocket. If you're here and you're a seeker, you're curious, you're skeptical, hear this argument and just let it, let, let it um, just think about it. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus, which is this. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one, of the, one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and worship him. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is either a liar, who you should absolutely despise, the absolute egomaniac, or he's a lunatic and therefore questionable, or he is Lord. There really is no middle ground. His claims and the ramifications of your life, if you take up his claims, no, no mere teacher, no mere prophet uh, has the right to say those things and ask those of his followers. And so Jesus is either Lord, lunatic, or a liar. The choice is yours. John is saying that he's Lord. John is saying that Jesus is God, and he has revealed to us who God is. So what exactly now does Jesus show us about God? First, his wise justice. And I choose those words specifically. I'll go ahead and, and uh, explain why I chose those words and what, what I mean by this. So go back to verse 14. And I want to think about this with you. It says, the word became flesh. The word, um, you know, the preexistent one <laughs> has become human. Entered into history as a human person. And then John writes verse 15. Uh, it says this. It's like a parenthetical remark. He's like, in, John's inserting this to sort of it's almost out of place chronologically, but he's using it to make a point. And he says this, John the Baptist, okay, different John, bore witness about Jesus and cried out, this is he of who I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John is saying that Jesus, his cousin who was born after him and whose ministry comes after John the Baptist's ministry, ranks ahead of him, is, is superior to him. And now in ancient thought, in ancient culture, that would be very taboo. That would be very radical because in ancient culture, uh, the value is placed upon the predecessor. If you're the first one or if you're the older, uh, you are superior. The younger, the, the one who comes after is always inferior. But John the Baptist here flips it around. He says, no, 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 I'm not superior. It's not about me. I'm not better. Jesus is better. And he, why is that? What's his explanation? He says, because he was before me. Now, John, the Baptist, says these things, and Andrew will teach on that next week. He, he says these confessions, these claims, but oftentimes with the Baptist, he's speaking better than he knows. He says these things, but they're almost seeds of thought, not full thoughts for John the Baptist. And so I don't think John knows exactly, exactly, exactly who Jesus is yet at this point. But he's saying something, he's suggesting something, which is what? That Jesus, who's born after him, who entered into history after him, and whose ministry happened after him, preexisted him somehow. So what do we make what would we make of this? That Jesus is both God and man, both human and divine. 
this is um, that Jesus is both God and man is absolutely necessary. It's a, it's a logical necessity of the whole entire story of Scripture. And here's why. The biggest conundrum that we see in the story of the Bible is how is it possible for God, who is holy, to dwell with man who is sinful? Those two things don't belong in the same room. Those two things are not compatible. How is it possible for holy God to be in relationship with fallen, sinful humanity? And so God, of course, throughout the whole Old Testament story, makes a provision with the temple sacrifices. The, the sacrificer could come bring a lamb, a ram, an animal without blemish and substitute that lamb in their place and make atonement for their sins. But you have to understand that that was only ever a temporary provision. That was only ever a covering to make the person who's offering that animal like ceremonially, ceremonially clean, um, superficially clean. That sacrifice did not make deep atonement. That sacrifice did not meet the deepest need that was present. It was a temporary solution, not the full necessary solution. What is needed all along for God who is holy and man who is sinful to be reconciled, to have right relationship is substitutionary atonement. Death in the place of the one who offends to make it right with God who is just. The problem, again, is those things didn't go deep enough. Those things didn't do the deep work of expunging sin, removing sin, and transferring to that person a perfect righteousness. It only did a surface job. In fact, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 9 says this, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, meaning it only made you clean in, in a ritual sense. It says this now, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, we needed substitutionary atonement from a life that is infinitely value to match our infinite sin debt. We needed, we needed a life in our place who could transfer to us an actual perfect righteousness. Therefore, what's necessary Whose life is the only one that is infinitely valuable, that is absolutely perfect? Only the life of God. And so what's necessary to bridge the gap between God and man? That God himself becomes human. That God himself embraces mortality so he actually can die in our place and bleed for us and then give to us his perfection. What is necessary for our salvation for things to be made right is substitutionary atonement from God himself. The incarnation. We needed the incarnation for things to be made right. And so John writes this in verses 16 and 17. From his fullness, from the incarnation, from the revelation of God in Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace, or I think the better way to actually translate that is grace instead of grace. Grace in place of a former grace. For the law was given through Moses. That was a grace. That was a grace of God to allow there to be relationship throughout the whole historical story of God's people through the temple, through these rituals. But God has done something better. He has given grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So he's done the deeper work. He's done the necessary work with his infinitely valuable life. 
because of our infinite sin debt, our infinite offense, and has given to us a perfect righteousness that no animal could ever give us. Jesus, through the incarnation, embraces the very thing we need, God to die for us, so that we could be once and for all forgiven, so there's no more sacrifices. Uh, we don't do it year after year after year after year like, like the people of Israel did in the Old Testament. Jesus has done once and for all what no one could ever do before. How can a God who is good and holy remain good and holy while embracing us who are unholy? Only through Jesus. Think about this. God has found a way to do the seemingly impossible. That gap was infinite. There is no way that we could ever breach heaven and access God on our own and reconcile ourselves to him. God had to do it, but he could not compromise his holiness. He could not compromise his justice. And so God in his genius, in his wisdom, makes a way while remaining just. The incarnation reveals what? A wise, just God. And you need both of that. You need that. If God compromises, then why follow him? If God compromises, then why can't we? But if God is holy, and if God is without compromise, he is always worthy of our worship. And we never have excuse, never reason to compromise ourselves. So the incarnation reveals who God is, specifically his wise justice. The incarnation was necessary, but also shows this. That's pretty good, right? I think it gets even better. It shows God's incredible love for us. Specifically, what I want to show us is, is three things about God's love. Why is it so incredible? Because it's intimate, because it's initiating, and because it's intense. All three eyes, all right? God's love is intimate, initiating, and intense. So it's intimate. So John's been stating and teaching us that Jesus makes the Father known. He makes the Father known. That's in verse 18. And if it's true that Jesus has made the invisible God known to us, the inaccessible God accessible, if that's true, then that's earth-shattering. And it's absolutely life-altering because, listen here, we can't love what we don't know. If God has made himself known fully to us through Christ, that means he has made it possible for us to have real love relationship with him. You can't know what you don't love. One of my favorite movies is Goodwill Hunting. Great movie. Uh, and there's a scene in the movie where it's about a troubled young man who meets with a counselor. Uh, and the counselor, they're talking, and the counselor's a widower. And he begins talking about uh, his wife and why he misses her and about love and marriage. And he says, the thing I, one of the things I miss most about my wife is the little idiosyncrasies. The things that I only knew because I was her husband and she was my wife. See, real intimacy comes through real knowledge. And the incarnation is an invitation to real intimacy because it's the, it's the expression of who God is. So without the incarnation, we wouldn't know God as deeply and as clearly as we do. So when you think, when you think of the incarnation, as we celebrate Christmas, you have to realize that the incarnation 
It's an invitation to divine intimacy. It's an invitation to come back to the thing that you were created for. You were created to know and love God. And God in patience works his way all throughout history, all throughout time to this very point to reveal himself through Christ so we can now finally love him. Real intimacy comes through real knowledge and that's what the incarnation has won for us, real intimacy with God. But not only that, is one for us, or it is an initiating love. His love is incredible because it's an initiating love. So in verse 14, it says that uh, Jesus has come to us, look at there in verse 14, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now, as I've been preaching, uh, I've talked about Moses and the tent of meetings and God being with man in the Old Testament. So in the background of these verses is those instances with Moses. And specifically, the words grace and truth, in a sense, what exactly they refer back to is Exodus 34. So if you don't know Exodus 34, it's this. It's one of the most famous stories in in the entire Bible. Uh, Moses pleads with God to remain with the people of Israel, even though they're stubborn and idolatrous. And God says, okay, I will remain with you. Moses says, I want proof. (laughs) I I want evidence, God, to know who I'm dealing with here are you really going to stay with us? Because these people, they're so bad. <laughs> and God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I will give you evidence that I will remain. And he gives him his name. He reveals his name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And he says, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And the words grace and truth refer back to those two words. So how do we know that God is committed to us? that he has pledged his heart to us to never leave us, that he's reliable. You look at the incarnation because it's the fullest expression of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what John is trying to say. But also, in another sense, you know, the Greek and the Jewish audience have, audiences have been in mind. We established this the first week. For the Jewish readers, the moral readers, when they think about the word coming into the world, they're thinking to themselves, how me as a person who can't keep the law of God, how can I be in right relationship with God? And the Greek readers, they're thinking this order and design in the world, this intelligence in creation, can we know it? Is that a person? Is that an intelligible, knowable being? And so, full of grace and truth, for them, for those readers, it means that, yes, that he has come to give grace. And yes, he has come to give truth. You can know him and you can be forgiven by him and you can have relationship with him. But think about this. God took it on himself completely to come and pledge himself to us and meet us where we were at in our desperate need. We needed forgiven. We needed illumination. We needed to be met by him and pledge. We, we needed, our hearts needed to, be, to, to have his commitment to us. That's what our hearts cry out for, nothing less. A love that is committed. The incarnation is God coming all the way to us to initiate that and promise that. God would have every reason. It would be totally right and fair for God to leave us to our own, to leave us to our own devices. And actually in the New Testament, God's wrath, when it talks about that, the, the most clearest definition of God's wrath is when he 
hands us over to our sin. When he says, okay, you want separation from me? You, you want alienation from me? You want independence from me? Very well. I, you can have it. I will grant it to you. That is God's wrath, in the, as the New Testament explains. So that's what hell is. Hell is, the, is the God saying yes to your heart's desire. You want separation from me? You can have it forever. That, friends, is what we were asking for. That, friends, is what we had built our lives on. That, friends, is what we deserved. Yet God steps out of heaven, out of glory and of privilege, and comes to us and initiates a love that is not cheap and not superficial, but promised kind of love, covenant kind of love, committed kind of love to us. He doesn't give us token love. He gives us the best kind of love there is. He initiates that, though. We don't earn it. We don't meet him halfway. We don't merit it. He gives it to us. God's love is incredible because it's intimate, because it's initiating, and lastly, because it's intense. If the incarnation is true, if this is real, then that means that we have been given access to the most intense, wonderful, joyful source of love that we will ever find in our lives. Go to verse 14 where it says that Jesus, he is the only son. I want to underline that phrase. He's the only son. Some of your uh, 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 Bibles might say begotten son. That word only son or begotten son, what it means in this context, like in the historical context, is that Jesus is the chosen son, like the, the special son, the one dearly loved. It's a, it refers to like a status of the favorite child. <laughs> that Jesus is the focus of God's delight. He is the focus of God's pleasure. And then in verse 18, it says that he who is at the Father's side has made him known, who is at the Father's side. Remember back in verse 3, where it says that all things were made through Jesus, and what we, what we talked about in that time is that uh, creation, like when the world was created, that was done from the overflow of the Father's joy in the Son, God does not create out of deficiency. God creates out of abundance between the relationship he has within himself. So it was the Father's celebration and joy in the Son that resulted in all of creation. So Jesus truly is the focus of God's delight and pleasure and love. He's at the Father's side. But for the, for the readers who know their Old Testament, I think what John is doing here in this verse is also alluding to a really wonderful Old Testament verse in Psalm 16. It says this, you make known to me the path of life. God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand. At your right hand, at the Father's side, are pleasures forevermore. Jesus, who is at the Father's side, the only Son, is fullness of joy is pleasures forevermore. He is the source of the most intense, wonderful love that your heart will ever know. This is why God's love is incredible. The incarnation, what it shows us and what it invites us into is this incredible love. So God has reconciled us and he has invited us. This is why we celebrate the incarnation. Now, what do we do now? What are we going to do with this tremendous reality that the Incarnation has invited us into? 
And so what I want to talk about now is our response to this. What do we need to practice in our Christian life in order to, to um, ingrain ourselves into the fabric of this wonderful reality? And there's, we could talk all day about that, but I just have two today that I want to leave you with, okay? One, how do you get in on what the incarnation is offering you? This is going to be a strange one, okay? But, but it's going to make sense after I explain it. It's obedience. Obedience is how you get in on what Jesus is offering you in himself. It says this in John 14. This will be behind me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. That is tremendous promise. That God's love will be poured into your heart, and he will make his love for you his grand, tremendous love for you, real to your own soul. Like he'll make his home in you. He'll be close to you. You'll feel him. You'll know him. But he says the pathway to that is obedience. Jesus is not saying that if you obey, you will earn God's love. Jesus is saying that if you obey, you will experience God's love. Now, why is that? Because here's what happens when we obey. And I don't mean obey in the ways that are easy. There's a lot of ways to obey Jesus that are just granted. I mean obedience when it's inconvenient. Jesus means obedience when it's not easy and when it costs you something. Here's why obedience like that brings about uh, that love, of that, that soul-level knowledge that you are loved by, by the Father. Because when you trust God enough to lay it on the line, to do what's inconvenient and uncomfortable— he verifies. He verifies that he is worth it. He verifies that he is real. And you become persuaded in your own lived experience that God is real. He loves you. He shows up for you. He never lets you down. He is worth it. He is better than all of those things that you would have settled for. Obedience is a way to take what is abstract and theoretical. Yes, God loves me. God loves me you know, those abstract thoughts. Obedience is a way to let the abstract things become concrete. Obedience is a way that the distance between our heads and our hearts shortens and decreases. What's in our heads is real in our hearts. So obey. Do you want to get in on the incredible love and know this God who's been revealed through Jesus coming in the flesh? Then obey, especially when it's hard and not convenient and he will make himself known to you and you will know the Father's love for you. So obey. That's one. Two, the Word. Get in the Word. Look at Hebrews 4. I want, I want to read this for you. It says, For the Word of God is living and active. And that, that word there, Word, <laughs> is Logos. For the Logos is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's like this. It's like, Jesus, the Logos, has come and made himself flesh. And John and all the apostles have seen it with their own eyes. And they're saying, because we've seen Jesus with our eyes, we know who the Father is. We have access to the Father. We have access to divine intimacy. But then you know what they did? They wrote down things about the Word. They documented Jesus' life 
and his works and his death, burial, and resurrection, and then his teachings and the abstractions from his teachings. So the Word who has become flesh has been documented in the Word for us. So the Word that they access, Jesus in the flesh, to know the Father, we now access the Word written down who is about Jesus to access the Father. That's what's going on here. Scripture... (laughs) In reading the Bible seriously and with devotion, it's not for pastors only. That's not something that just top-tier Christians do. That is God's will and desire for all of his people, that we read and saturate ourselves in God's word. And we're talking about application here. How do we respond to the fact that the incarnation is inviting us into this amazing reality? There is one main threat against you for your enjoyment of the Word and getting what what the Word is meant to get for you. And I'm talking, I think, mostly to millennials and below here, but it's okay, everyone else can listen who's not in that bracket. Your phone, this is application, your smartphone is the greatest threat against your enjoyment of the Word. And the reason I'm saying this is because I see it too much in my own life. I am so uncomfortable with how often I pick up my phone and like five minutes later, I have no idea why I picked up in the first place. Like we're addicted to distraction and addicted to chronically scrolling and vegging out. Here's what is um, so mind-boggling. Everything on our phones, social media, uh, sports, influencers, whoever content, I, I bet 99 times out of 100, it's unimportant. It's just not important stuff. And here is following Jesus. Heaven and hell are at stake. People are genuinely suffering and need hope. We have this amazing opportunity to know and love God. I mean, everything about following Jesus is important. <laughs> so important and yet we're doing all of these unimportant things over here on our phones. I would be so happy if the product of this sermon was that you spent less time on your phone this week and more time in the Word. Because that's God's design for us to actually access the wonder of the Incarnation. Obey when it's not convenient and you'll know the Father's love. It'll be verified to your, to your heart. And get in the Word, and be in the Word, and remove distractions. Don't, in other words, don't waste the incarnation. What a wonder, and what an opportunity we have to know and love God. Don't waste it. Let's pray. God, convict us and lead us to a better place with you. God, we repent. We ask forgiveness of all the times that we prefer other things over you and choose other things over you. God, I pray that you would ignite a passion in our hearts to obey you and to saturate our minds and our hearts in your word. We thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us 
You do not have to do that. You could have stayed in the comfort of glory, yet in the second person of the Trinity, your son Jesus, you have come to us to give us the best love, the best relationship, and nothing less. And so, Father, I pray that you would move us towards you today and that we would take you up on what you're offering us in the Word who has become flesh and dwelt among us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.